and today we are going to talk about BTK. Um, it's kind of an odd episode for me because my child has the initials BKT, not to be confused with BTK. You He's, did it on purpose. Yeah, I did because I love serial killers. Um, before we get into the gory details, we're going to talk about what BTK's life was like on the outside, what people saw him as. Um, he was born March 9th. What's his real name? His name is Dennis Rader. Dennis Rader was born on March 9th, 1945, in the area where Kansas, Oklahoma, and Missouri meet. He was the oldest of four sons and had a pretty normal middle-class childhood. In his youth, he had fantasies about bondage and control, especially towards women in his pubescent years. He killed small animals by hanging them. Red flag. Yeah. Also, when I say small animals, I'm not, I'm not like... It's not like an ant or anything. It's like... <laughs> Hanging ants. It's, he was like killing cats and dogs. So like, you know how dog breeds be. Like, yeah. You don't know if it's small or not. Anyways, killing animals, that's nuts. He served in the military in the 1960s. So he moved around a lot. He was in Tokyo, Korea, Greece, Turkey, all kinds of places like that. Uh, when he got discharged from the military he married paula Dietz on may of 1971 and um at that time he worked for coleman company it's the camping equipment uh company they make like coolers and whatnot and lanterns yeah 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 and then he worked for adt and then he worked as a compliance officer for park city kansas so um i was reading about btk and his jobs, and came across the ADT information, which is obviously the security system, the home security systems. He worked for them from 1974 into 1988, and obviously when that became um, known, that was a PR nightmare for the company. And he would often install systems for families who were seeking protection from none other than who? The BTK killer. Right. And um, he also used this work perk to his advantage, making use of his expertise with alarms and mapping out areas and victims like a through-and-through through predator. Oh, yeah. He was lethal. He was an active church member, and he served as a Boy Scout leader, which made people think, you know, this guy would never do something like that. They were, he was not even on their radar. I'd be looking at Boy Scout leaders sideways. Yeah. Because some shit has come out recently. Part of my language. I'm drinking wine. But... Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree with that. Not all of them. Carry on. He graduated from Wichita State University with a degree in none other than... Criminal justice. Yep. So, there you go. He was trying to work the system by being in the system. Um, starting in 1974, he would drop his wife off at work and then spend his day watching people. At this time, he was in between jobs, um, so he didn't have any responsibilities. He told his wife that he was out searching for jobs, but he was basically finding victims to prey on. One morning after dropping his wife off at work, Dennis Rader spotted Mrs. Otero and was infatuated with her looks and brown skin. Oh, Yeah. He had so, a fetish. Watch out, Pinky. You got that brown yeah, skin? Yeah, I'm so, I'm so uh, brown. He targeted the Otero house, watching their schedules morning after morning. At 7 a.m. January 15th, after taking his wife to work, 
Dennis Rader walked into the Otero household and encountered four out of seven family members. Rader expected the mother, Julie, and the two small children, Joseph II, who they also called Joey, and Josephine to be there. The Otero family also consisted of three other children, but they were older and had already left for school at this point. However, to his surprise, the father, Joseph, happened to be there that morning as well. After entering the house, Raider confronted the family and coerced them to the bedroom with a gun. After gathering the family into the bedroom, Raider instructed them to lay down on the floor, and he bound each person's hands and feet. He said after he did this, he got complaints that the restraints were uncomfortable and too tight, so he loosened the restraints several times in order to make them comfortable. In addition, Mr. Otero informed Dennis Rader that he had suffered multiple cracked ribs in a car accident a few weeks prior, so laying on the floor increased his pain level drastically. So Rader actually placed pillows underneath Mr. Otero in order to give him some comfort. Yeah. I don't understand that. If you're going to kill somebody, what are you trying to give them some comfort for? Anyways, at this point, the Otero parents were pleading for their lives and offered to give Raider anything he wanted. The house, the car, the money, etc. But he knew that they would be able to identify, identify him, so he went with the decision to kill them. Mm -hmm. First, he put a plastic bag over Mr. Otero's head and wrapped cords around it, tightening it so he couldn't breathe. Mr. Otero didn't suffocate right away. He had cleverly found a way to tear a hole in the bag using his teeth. When Raider noticed that Mr. Otero was still breathing, he placed a t-shirt over the first bag and then put an additional bag over Mr. Otero's head. This caused him to suffocate quickly. Next, Raider strangled Mrs. Otero. When he thought she was dead, he moved on to the Otero daughter, Josephine. He strangled Josephine until she was unconscious and then put a bag on Joey, the son's head. To Raider's surprise, Mrs. Otero came too. She woke up and immediately saw Dennis Raider putting a bag over the head of her son, Joey. She got upset and started to fight. She was begging Raider to save her son and not to kill him. Raider strangled Mrs. Otero and she died from the second strangulation. He took Joey into another room away from his parents and put a bag over his head as well as a cloth, a t-shirt, and another bag so that Joey could not tear a hole in the bag like his father did. Joey died just minutes after. Raider went back into the bedroom where Josephine was laying and realized that she had woken up. Dennis Raider picked up Josephine and took her to the basement where he hung her from a pipe. After he hung Josephine, he masturbated right beside her body and actually left some semen, semen evidence at the scene. Raider then cleaned up the house a little bit and took a few items such as Mr. Otero's watch and a radio. He found the keys to the Otero family car and drove it to a nearby Dillon's. Um, it's like a, they described it as sort of like a food fair type deal. Mm -hmm. um, and he abandoned it and proceeded to his car on foot. I've seen some serial killers in food fairs before, that's for sure. Yeah, that's where they all like go. Like the local shop? Mm -hmm, that's for sure. Like the neighborhood shop, they're keeping the scene. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know what? If you go to food fair and you buy groceries from food fair, you're automatically a serial killer because their prices are so high. You know who loves food fair? It's got to be Connie. Granny. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> but she sends Landon in. She sends Landon in. Okay, so, so Landon's a serial killer. Of course he's going to take the fall. Yeah. Big black man, but go yeah. ahead. 
Later, Raider realized he had forgotten his knife in the yard at the Otero home. He drove his own car to their house, parked it in their garage, and retrieved the knife. Okay, pause again. So, this is where I think my true crime obsession kind of peaked. Because I mentioned in an episode before that I'm really big on, like, your uh, datelines and your 48-hour investigations and stuff like that. Mm Mm-hmm. But when they get into, like, the sexual element of it, mm-hmm. whether it be rape or just, like, he masturbated beside her dead body, that's when I kind of, like, pull back. Yeah. That's when I when I start to get uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. So, um, I'm kind of hearing this for the first time. So... Yeah, it is uncomfortable. And there's a... On Murderpedia is where I found most of the information... They go into a lot of detail, um, especially about the the sexual parts, and I I'm, I don't include that in this. I don't really want to talk about that. Um, yeah, I it, mean, we'll probably put the link or something. Right. But. Yeah, yeah, we'll always link it, but it's just kind of, um, especially if there's you know people in my family that watch. I don't really want to be talking about that on here. It just kind of makes me uncomfortable. So, I don't know. In April of 1974, Dennis Rader picked out another victim. On April 4th, he broke into the home of Catherine Bright. He went through the back door and hid in a bedroom until it was time for Catherine to come home. Around 2 p.m., Catherine came home, but to Rader's surprise, Catherine's brother Kevin was with her. Rader appeared from the bedroom and caught the two off guard. He told them that he was from California and was trying to get to New York and he needed a car and money. And so I just want to make a point about that. This is the same story that he uses from here on out. Um, That he is from California. He's trying to get to New York. All he needs is, uh, sometimes he says a car and money. Sometimes he says food, a car and money. Whatever it is, he's trying to get to New York and he, like... The purpose is not him killing them. Mm-hmm. The purpose is he needs this stuff and he will leave them alone. Raider forced the two in a bedroom where he made Kevin tie Catherine's hands and feet at gunpoint. He then took Kevin into another room to tie him up, but that didn't go as planned. Kevin got loose and put up a fight, almost overpowering Raider. However, Raider let off a shot that hit Kevin in the face. At this point, Kevin had a gunshot wound to the face but was still fighting. Raider ended up shooting him a second time to finish him off and went back to the bedroom where he had Catherine bound. Catherine also gave Raider a run for his money, so he had to work under pressure and change from his plan of strangulation to stabbing her in the stomach as deeply as he could. Kevin was able to come to in this moment after two gunshot wounds to the head and hoisted himself up and ran out the door screaming for help. Raider then had to immediately leave, He ran many blocks on foot to his car and went home to clean up before it was time for his wife to get off work. Catherine later died at the hospital, but Kevin survived. He survived after two gunshots to the head? Yep. And he was able to go to a nearby neighbor's house and call for help. Um, And he told them to take his sister first uh, in the ambulance. Uh And then he would wait for another one. And, um, so, yeah, but he survived. There's uh, an interview with him, and I'll, uh, put the, we'll put the link on here so you can see it. He looks good for having two gunshot wounds to the head, so, Mm -hmm. go him. In October of 1974, a newspaper editor for the Wichita Eagle newspaper (laughs) answered an incoming call from an unidentified male that sent him to a nearby library. 
The man on the other end of the phone told him to go to the public library and search for a specific engineering book there. In the engineering book, the editor found a letter that described the Otero family murders in great detail. Details that only would be known by someone who worked the crime scene or the killer himself. The letter read, I did it myself with no one's help. The code words for me will be dot 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 bind them, torture them, kill them, BTK. Um, so I have a question for you. Okay. This was a thing for him. Like he, he kept up with the letters, right? Right. Okay. Yep. So I found some information about the letters and apparently um, <laughs> many of his letters were riddled with grammatical errors. Um, sentences like, let's put this straight, or those three dude, were his attempts at a structured phrasing. Some errors were so bad that most law enforcement thought they were on purpose, like the Zodiac Killer. But that was not the case. And after actually reading one of BTK's letters, his own wife noted that he himself spells just like BTK. So she knew that her, I was about to say her son, her husband couldn't spell. Wow. And she spotted the similarities right off the bat. But obviously you're not thinking that, oh, I married a serial killer. So <laughs> she just dismissed it as him being a dumbass, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, I, I actually, like the part of the letter that I just read was it had messed up stuff in it. Like, but I decoded it mm -hmm. so that I could like actually read it. But yeah, he, um, uh, in all of his letters, they say that he is just absolutely horrible at grammar and spelling and all that kind of stuff. In November of 1974, Dennis Rader landed a job with ADT Security. He would go different places throughout the day to install security systems. And now we know that's why he worked for them, so he could use it to his advantage. Right, right. In 1975... Dennis and Paula Rader welcomed a baby boy, Brian, to their family. Dennis was still working for ADT and he was taking business or he was taking classes at night at Wichita State University. He had a full schedule and was keeping busy. So there wasn't much um, in 1975, 1976. They, they didn't really think that he had committed any murders in that time because he was so busy with home, work, and school. Mm, and his baby. Yes. On March 15, 1977, Dennis Rader couldn't take it anymore. He needed to kill again. For a couple weeks, he had been patrolling a specific area where a girl lived that he met at a bar. This girl, Cheryl, rented a home with another woman. Rader decided he would try their house. He did, but no one was home. He then tried another house in the neighborhood, but no one was there either. After having no luck, Rader decides to go on foot back to his car when he stumbles upon a five-year-old boy, Steve. Raider and Steve have a brief interaction, and Steve continued to walk to his house, house, house which was <laughs> not far away. First of all, okay, in at this day and age, it is just so weird for me to read that a five-year-old boy's name was Steve. <laughs> okay, I was thinking the same <laughs> thing, but I wasn't going to say it. <laughs> I mean, yeah. Steve. Yeah. <laughs> Steve. Here, Steve. Yeah. It's time for your bath. <laughs> Literally, I think of like an old man. <laughs> right. Okay. And that there's just a five-year-old walking outside? Yes. Well, and I'll explain that here in just okay. a second. Okay, uh, Raider watched him walk back to his house, and uh, as Steve got into the house and shut the door, Raider knocked on the door, and Steve answered, of course. Raider posed as an official and said that he needed entry into the house, so Steve allowed it. 
upon <laughs> Steve allowed it. Come on, Stevie. <laughs> God. Oh, gosh. Upon entering the house, Raider saw Steve's siblings, an eight-year-old brother and a four-year-old sister. Raider turned off the TV and closed the blinds. Steve's mother appeared and asked what was going on, only to find Raider with a gun. Raider coerced the children into the bathroom and put up a blockade so the children could not get out. He then tied up the mother, Shirley, at her wrists and her ankles. He told Shirley that he was going to have his way with her. Shirley then got sick and threw up as a result of being sick that day. Hold on. Yeah. Shirley's an old ass name too. So. <laughs> I know. Listen, she was twenty four. Shirley. Yeah. So Miss Shirley. Yeah. But and so this is my point is that she was at home in bed sick. Mm-hmm. So she had asked Steve to I don't know why she didn't ask the eight year old. Anyway, she asked Steve, the five-year-old, to run to the store real quick, which was right down the road. So, on his way back, that's when he met with Dennis Rader. She probably forgot his age because he has that old-ass name. <laughs> she probably like, my 45-year-old son, Steve, please go to the to the grocery store for me. So, Shirley was there in bed. Uh, she was sick that day. She hadn't felt well, and um so she threw up instead of raping shirley like he planned to do raider got a glass of water and a cigarette to make her feel better i'm over him yeah he's just making everybody comfortable let me comfort you before i kill you i don't get it after shirley settled down raider strangled her to death with a cord it was said that semen was found on her panties next to her body at the crime scene raider got spooked by a telephone call and fled before he killed the children the following December, Dennis Rader selected his next victim, Nancy Fox. Nancy was a 25-year-old who worked at a local jewelry store and lived alone in a duplex. Rader began stalking her, which eventually led to the attack on December 8th. Rader cut the phone lines right before breaking into her duplex. And again, he had studied her routines, so uh, he had broken into her house right before she was due home from work. Rader waited on Nancy to get home from work and as she arrived, he confronted her with a gun. After, after he allowed her to take her clothes off from the waist down in the bathroom, she was then ordered to lay on the bed while Raider tied her to the bedposts. He announced to her that he was actually BTK and that he was the one who killed the Otero family. Raider then strangled Nancy to death with a ligature. Again, semen was found next to her body. The next morning, Raider called in the homicide to the police department from a payphone on his work route. The 911 call was recorded, but no one could identify the voice, not even Dennis Rader's friends or family. And we are going to, is this, this is the audio of the 911 call, right? right. Yeah, so we're going to insert this right here. Um, and then, I don't know if we're going to play the whole thing, but you can, like, we'll link to it. So you can, if we don't, then you can, you know, go and look at it. It's from YouTube, so it's not hard to find. Yeah. Yes, you will find a homicide at 843 South Pershing, Nancy Fox. I'm sorry, sir, I can't understand you. So what is your address? 843 no idea what this meant, so they just kind of put it to the side, hoping that someone would call in or come by and have something that made this poem make sense to them. 
they just they got just that. Several days after the Shirley Locks poem came to them by mail, the Wichita Eagle received a letter that was said to be written by the killer of the Otero family, Shirley Vian, Nancy Fox, and an un an unnamed victim who they discovered was Catherine Bright. The letter goes on to give reason as to why these killings happen and even includes many nicknames for the killer, including VTK. So whenever I put the clip in of the 911 call, there's going to be just a little bit of brief discussion about um, BTK's narcissism and how he always had that need and that want for attention. So when he calls in and reports himself and when he sends these letters and when he sends these mm -hmm. poems, that's, that's his need to be, to feel like I did this on my own and you'll never catch me. So he's satisfying like some narcissistic tendencies here. And like I said, they'll briefly discuss that whenever I put the audio in of the 911 call. Right. In June of 1978, Dennis and Paula Rader welcomed a baby girl, Carrie. In April of 1979, Dennis Rader selected yet again another victim. This time it was a little bit different. He had selected an older widowed woman. Anna Williams, 63 years old and very recently widowed, came home a little bit later one night and it worked to her benefit. Raider, of course, had been watching Anna to figure out her routine and when to attack. One night in April, Raider broke into Anna's house and waited for her to get home. However, he waited and waited and waited. Anna never showed. Raider ended up taking a few items from the home and he left. Two months later, Raider sent a package to Anna in the mail that had a poem, a drawing of what was supposed to have happened to her on that April night, and the, fate, and the few items Raider had taken from her house. A similar package was sent to the KAKE TV studio the next day. In utter panic, Anna moved from her home and far away from Wichita. Okay, so comedic moment. This mm -hmm. is an observation from somebody who doesn't know anything about this case. Okay. So, he's writing poems. Mm -hmm. He is uh, drawing pictures of what was supposed to happen. Um... I read some other things about him using like cereal boxes and dolls to like reenact or, uh, yeah, reenact his crimes and yeah. kind of like put them on display. Right. He sounds like a disgruntled art student. Yeah. Who wasn't put in, yeah. the, put in the correct arts program. He didn't make it to the gifted and talented program. And I feel like if our educators, <laughs> all right, I'm just joking, but no, it's just, it's just, it's. No, I, mean, I see like what a, you're saying. It's like a, like I said, a comedic moment during a nasty story. It just makes me think like he had all these outlets and I don't know if he was talented or not, but like he obviously liked to create things and tell stories. So right. I don't know. It just feels like um, he went the wrong way with his self-expression. Yeah. Oh, I agree. Murder is not the correct way to do that. <laughs> After the planned attack of Anna Williams failed, Raider was quiet. He became more involved in church and Boy Scouts and became more of the family man that his kids needed. The public and police hadn't heard anything from BTK, so they assumed he had died or that he was incarcerated somewhere, but they didn't ask questions about this by any means. The silence and peace was nice in their area. However, this all changed when Dennis Raider struck again. While choosing a victim... This one in particular came pretty easy to Raider. Maureen Hedge, a 53-year-old widow, lived just down the street from Dennis Raider and his family. They often spoke to each other when Dennis would take a walk and with his wife Paula. 
Marine was an avid gardener, so the chances that they would run into each other outside were very high. On April 27, 1985, Dennis Rader excused himself from a Boy Scout camping event due to a headache. He said he wasn't feeling well and that he was going to drive into town to get some medicine and kind of wait out the headache, but, but he would be back. Rader drove to a bowling alley and parked his car and called a cab to take him to a park in Park City. He told the taxi driver he was drunk, although he wasn't, so that the taxi driver wouldn't find it odd that he wanted to quote-unquote walk it off from the park to his nearby home. It just so happened that one side of the park was the backyard of Marine Hedge. Raider cut the phone line and pried open the door, finding no one home. Suddenly, he saw car lights flashing through the windows, so in a panic, he ran into one of the bedrooms and hid in the closet. Marine and a friend, Gerald, came into the home, and Gerald stayed until 1 a.m. Oh. Yeah. Okay, Okay, widow. Having a little visitor, a nightcap, if you will. After Marine had fallen asleep, Raider jumped out of the closet and attacked Marine, choking her to death. After he was sure that she was dead, he wrapped her up in the bedding and put her in the trunk of her own car. He drove with her in the trunk to his church and carried her in the church into the basement, where he then took pictures of her in different positions. Raider put Marine back into the trunk and dumped her body on a dirt road along the way. He left her pantyhose by her body. He then drove back to the bowling alley where his car was, wiped Marine's car down for fingerprints, and drove his car back to the campsite. In September of 1986, Raider selected another victim, 28-year-old mother of two, Vicki Wegerly. I guess that's how you say it, I don't know. Raider would walk by Vicki's house and hear her playing piano. Around 10.30 a.m. on September 16th, Dennis Raider rang Vicky's doorbell, dressed as a telephone repairman. He talked his way through Vicky and was allowed to come in. When he was finally in, he told Vicky he was going to tie her up. He held a gun to her head and forced her into the bedroom. She fought him for a long time so that he wouldn't tie her up, but he eventually got her tied up with ropes and strangled her with her own pantyhose. He again took pictures of her body and then made an escape with Vicky's car. As Raider was driving, Vicky's husband actually saw his wife's car leaving in the other direction, but couldn't make out a description of the man to the police. Vicky was pronounced dead as soon as she arrived at the hospital. For years later, police would question Vicky's husband, Bill, as a suspect of her murder. In November of 1987, Dennis Raider preyed on another family, the Fager family. Raider killed Philip, the father, and the two teenage daughters. The police believed that this was not a BTK murder and and arrested a contractor who worked for the Fager family. The contractor was acquitted and released after Mrs. Fager received a letter in the mail from BTK, which explained that he was not at fault for the murder of her family, but that he appreciated the work of someone else who was at fault. In January of 1991, Dennis Rader found yet again another victim. Dolores Davis, who lived about a mile and a half away from him, but had no other connections. Rader chose Dolores because she was renting a house where neighbors were far and few between. He also did some investigating, of course, and found that she was a single woman and had no roommates, so this made him even more interested. The night in question, Raider again used an excuse to leave a Boy Scout camping trip. He drove to his parents' house, who were gone for the weekend, and changed clothes. 
He then drove to his church parking lot, parked his car, and went to Dolores' house by foot. Raider waited until he saw the lights in Dolores' house go out in order to pounce. He used a cement block and knocked open the glass door at the back of the house. Dolores came out of her room in a panic to find Raider in her house. Dolores struggled with Raider for some time, but again, he was able to subdue her until he could strangle her to death by a ligature. So, before you go on, it seems like a lot of his um, victims fought back. Yes. And um, I know a lot of these were in like the 70s, 80s, and 90s, but if they fought back, that makes me think there might have been like... um, uh, like maybe his skin or something underneath their fingernails, you know what right, I'm talking about? Right, like, yeah, like defensive wounds. Yeah, defensive wounds. Yeah. Was that ever mentioned? No, I never saw anything about that mentioned. Um, and I know, I did see though that um, in, let's see, all of his jobs maybe, ADT specifically, he had to wear long sleeves. Mm-hmm. Okay. So that makes me think, you know, like... Um, that's that could cover it up easily, but as for defensive wounds, I did not see anything about that at all. Gotcha. Um. After Dolores died, he Raider created a sketch of her laying on the bed, bound and dead. Raider dragged Dolores's body and put it in the trunk of her own car. He drove to a nearby lake and left the body. He drove back to Dolores's house to wipe fingerprints off of anything he touched. He disposed of her car keys. And listen to how he disposed of car keys. Like, when he would take a victim's car somewhere, he would park it, like, wherever. And and, and he did this at the, what was it, Dillon's? That, mm-hmm. like, the grocery place. He did this um, at the Dillon's, too. He would throw their keys on top of the roof. <laughs> yeah. And, like, they interviewed this woman that said that she watched him throw the keys on top of the roof. Like, I'm not... Bystander effect. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. That is so right. So he disposed of her car keys by throwing them on the roof and walked back to the Baptist church to retrieve his car. He then went back to his parents' house to change clothes before heading back to the campsite. The night after Dolores' death, Raider went back to the dump site at the lake and took pictures of her body. I've heard from multiple sources that when he did go back to the dump site, um... That he encountered a police officer. Mm-hmm. And he basically talked his way out of that. And they didn't think that he had anything to do with it. But, um, yeah, he encountered a police officer and was kind of, like, asked a few questions um, at that dump site. Um, and so that's that's the killings. That's kind of like the killing stuff that we have. Um mm-hmm about btk um so you know his name was dennis raider and he deemed himself btk bind them torture them kill them um and so you know after this death after he killed dolores there was a lot of um i'm trying to think really what how to say this there was publicity about his cases um, in a book, like somebody had written a book about it, mm-hmm. and um, so he wasn't getting the fame, oh. you know, like the writer was getting the fame of all these killings that they were writing about, right. and so he dropped off, I think it was 10 things to different places, 
like the public library was one of them that news station was another one and that was like he was he dropped off 10 clues Mm -hmm. that it was him yeah um and finally the very last clue he dropped off was a disc and it had uh the floppy disc yes the floppy disc and it had stuff about uh, you know, his killings or whatever on it. And they were able to trace it back to uh, his church computer. Mm-hmm. And so that is how he they busted him. And, um, like, before that they had arrested him, they went and asked his daughter to give um, some DNA samples. Yeah. And she did, and she didn't know what it was about. Um, and so they were able to track the semen um, and get familial DNA from right. his daughter. So he ended up being arrested on February 25th, 2005? He did, yes. And he had dropped that, the floppy disk off, um, I think it was like February. It was in February of 2005. I can't remember the exact day, but it was just like he led them to his arrest, basically. Right. Like he was just so mad that he wasn't getting the fame and everybody else was like talking about it and didn't know who did it and whatever. So he wanted that. He wanted that fame. Yeah. And um, I did a little bit of additional research, and um, that's kind of what they dove into. They said that one of the unique aspects of Raider's crime spree was his enormous ego, which I talked about a little bit earlier. He was a narcissist, but he kept constant contact with the press in the 70s to spread fear. And um, in one of his earlier letters, he actually blamed his... uh, crimes his murders on something called factor x mm-hmm. um he fancied himself as an aficionado of serial killers and said that everyone from jack the ripper to ted bundy to the son of sam had the same factor x so after um, he was arrested he actually revealed that factor x was a demon oh. um in 2007 he described it as something that controls his desire to kill, and he's mm-hmm. actually drawn it. Another thing, like he, you know, this man was into creating stuff in the arts. Right. Um, he depicted it as a frog once, and then he also depicted it as a traditional-looking demon. He claims that Factor X pushed him that fateful day. He said, I knew somewhere along the line of 8th grade or freshman year in high school that I had some abnormal tendencies at that point in time, but it exploded in on January 15th, 1974. That's when the ball game exploded. You know, at some point in time, someone should have picked something up for me and identified it. And I feel like I say that every time after we do one of these podcasts. Mm-hmm. And then I also say hindsight is twenty twenty. Right. But I mean, the signs were there. Like even his, his own wife admitted. Like, yes, about the letter. Right. Yeah. And the fact that you said that he encountered a cop. And the cop asked him some questions yeah. and then just let him dip out. Right. Um, At a dump site of a body. Right. And then there was a few other things I found. If you just give me a moment. Um, there were some facts that um, BuzzFeed came up with mm-hmm. that they said we may not know about the infamous BTK. But before I get into that, I just want to say... Our little promo post for the week was a pixelated picture of uh, BTK in the courtroom. Oh, yeah. And I told these people I'd give them shout-outs for being creeps. Because (laughs) I pixelated the picture, but I didn't do it so much that it was unrecognizable. I knew that people knew 
that knew who Dennis Rader was, they'd pick up on it. Right, but you can't just look at it and be like, unless you're a creep like us, you can't just look at it and be like, oh, Dennis Rader. Well, Holly's a creep. Yeah. Lena's a creep. And Josh Blanton's a creep. Yeah. <laughs> um, also, Meredith Sargent. Do you know her? Sergeant? Yes, yes, I do. She, she said, I scrolled through Facebook and thought, <laughs> why is Dennis Rader blurred out on my timeline, then realized who posted it and got excited? So, thanks for engaging. Thanks for listening. All that, of course. But these facts that I'm about to read, you guys probably know them already. Uh, 19 facts about serial killer BTK that I don't rec- recommend you read late at night. This <laughs> well, is <laughs> here we are. <laughs> this is from Crystal Rowe from BuzzFeed. I'm not going to read all of them. Um, one of them reads that in total, he, um, killed 10 people and he had plans to kill an 11th person in 2004. He enjoyed dressing up as his victims and would take selfies of himself that way, which I thought was super odd. Um, you know what? I have an additional thing to say. You know how I told you about, um, how he took Dolores to that dump site? Mm-hmm. He actually, there was a, a picture of him in the grave that he dug oh for God. her. Yeah, before he put her in there. Yeah, so I think that's what I was talking about earlier. According to the authorities, this was his way of recreating his crime scenes to live in that moment for years. So, mm-hmm. like I said, he kind of relived and reenacted stuff um, by dressing up, playing with dolls, cereal boxes, stuff like that. Um, Another fact, he used to cut out female figures from magazine ads and then draw ropes and gags on them. Ooh. Yeah. Um, Carly already told us this, that he he claimed as a child he used to kill animals, supposedly by hanging them. Um, We read this as well, but he was very um, active in his church, um, seeing as the floppy disk was traced back to his <laughs> church computer and he served as a Boy Scout leader. There's a picture of him in his uniform that just absolutely creeps me out knowing that yeah. he did all these things to these, these people. Um, let's see. I think it, um, was it the Otero family, mm-hmm. Joseph and Julie? Yes. Um, their bodies were discovered by uh, their three older children. Yes. Charlie, Danny, and Carmen. Um, we already discussed the semen. He's a sicko. Yeah. Raider liked to collect souvenirs from his killings, oftentimes underwear. There's also a picture of what looks like a, a mask of a woman's face that's Ew. dirty. So I don't know if he buried that or whatever. But um, he would keep these. <laughs> he would keep these souvenirs in what he called hidey holes. <laughs> <laughs> his hidey holes. Um, which were places inside his home, church, buried in the ground, or taped to bridges. Taped oh, to bridges. Oh, sweet Jesus. Wow. I, I'm going to go check the bridge. I, would, I would never <laughs> think of that. Um, he described his preferred masturbation practice as motel parties. What? He would go to a motel room, bind his wrists and ankles, and cover his head with a bag. So how was he masturbating? If, he was, if his hands were bound... Y'all tell me how y'all think. Yeah, good luck with that one. <laughs> I mean, Last... I'm no expert, but... Um, we already talked about Kevin surviving his attack. Um, mm-hmm. He survived by playing dead, which is something I think about a lot. Like, I think a lot, like, if there was... 
this is going to sound morbid, but if there was like a mass shooting or something like that, like mm -hmm. I feel like I would, my first instinct, instinct, if obviously if I'm with my family and friends, I'm going to try to protect them, get them out of there. But if it's just me, I'm falling to the ground and I'm not moving. Yeah. I'm not breathing. Playing dead is, yeah. I'm because sure. they're not going to look to see if you're dead most of the time. Right. Excuse me. And um, that is pretty much it for the facts like i said this is from buzzfeed we'll post the link um he also called himself the natural born predator and that's when he goes into um, his urges being caused by the factor x demon hmm. so yeah that is what we have for dennis raider btk and carly and i thought this would be a good kickoff to let's call it our halloween series okay um Lena, which was one of the creeps we shouted out, <laughs> she said we should save BTK for a special occasion. Um, a few other people hit us up and suggested that. He was also on our original list of killers when we were um, just, you know, brainstorming about starting this podcast. So what better way to celebrate spooky season than to cover one of the sickest, most uh, diabolical, sinister, evil... Yeah serial killers of all time pretty much sucks as a human yeah so that was part one and next week we are going to do an episode that's pretty much based on local crime um i know a lot of you all are already familiar with the ashland tragedy um we've mentioned this before but we found a youtube video of a girl in australia covering the ashland tragedy um she needs to stay in her lane <laughs> there has been uh plenty of stuff i've already found on social media i saw a post on it today actually posted in one of the ashland kentucky groups on facebook so we'll be diving into that we'll also be diving into uh the story about jan nysel i don't think carly's familiar with this one i am not but this is one my mom has always told me about and we're going to try to maybe find one or two more stories. Um, it won't necessarily be limited to Ashland, but definitely in the community, probably the tri-state area. So that'll be our Halloween finale next week. And speaking of local crime, our friend Ceci sent us a link today about some um, a body being found in Virginia that was actually identified as a Canova woman. I saw that. Which is basically right down the street in West Virginia. Oh, yeah. Um, this art... Fam. What? Fam. This article is from 2015. But you saw it? Did you see something else about it? There was something, a body being found. I'm not editing this out. It was from Ashland, I thought. I didn't think it was from Canova. I'm thinking of... Bro. Party foul. I'm not editing this out, though. Um. <laughs> okay, hold on. This is what happens when you don't thoroughly research before you start recording. But she said that one of her um, client's mothers actually told her about it and that there was a person going around killing women and then dumping their body in their bodies in trash cans because the trash is where these women belonged. So it sounded like, you know, a he-man woman hater or something right. like that. 
But um, we're going to have to follow up with you on that one. I really thought that maybe it was going around on Facebook or something. I could have swore. And you know how people are on Facebook. Like, they'd just be sharing stuff mm-hmm. and don't look at the dates. But I swear I thought that I saw something about somebody being murdered from Ashland. I thought it said. And they were found somewhere else. Well, either way, we can still talk about it. So there was a body found in a burned trash bin. And I don't know why they're saying bin because we're not in England. Um, at an apartment complex in Prince William County, Virginia, which was identified as a Canova woman. Um, like I said, the Canova, uh, Canova is basically just, you know, a couple miles down the road right? in West Virginia. Um, it takes no time to get there. So it's pretty local. Um, and yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to follow up with her to see exactly what she was talking about, but that is our local story for the day. Um, anything you want to add? Um, I just wanted to say that this was kind of like a touch on um, on BTK. Uh, there's still all kinds of stuff. If you go to Murderpedia, there is just all kinds of stuff. We could probably talk about this for days. Uh, yeah. But we, you know, this is not what we do for a living. Um, Didn't want to do a four-hour episode. Right, and and I wasn't going to do a part two on this. So, um, yeah, if you if you want to do some more research on it, there's plenty more where this came from. Right. Um, but other than that, I guess we'll see you guys next Thursday, right? Next Thursday, and if you haven't done it already, vote. Um, oh, yeah. That's I know right. that it is uh, where they're doing early voting in Kentucky. Uh, I'm sure there are other states doing it as well. Last week, I filled out my absentee ballot and I dropped it in the mailbox. So I did my part. I'm on right here. Um, what you should do is just don't listen to anybody else. Do your own research. Um, I'm not going to tell you who to vote for. Yeah, get off Facebook and listen <laughs> to people. Research something, would yeah. you? Research something from a reputable source. I know, you know, in today's day and age, and really, you know, since the beginning of time, the media's a hoax. It's yeah. all a hoax, which there is truth in that. But at the same time, there are, there are sources out there. There are resources. There's a plethora of information. Mm-hmm. Do your due diligence. Fill out the ballot. If you're going in person... Wear a mask. Don't be a jerk. Stay six feet away. Use your hand sanitizer. All that. And that is all we have for you today. Yep. So stay safe and don't get killed. Follow baby flamingo.